Hello and welcome to The Good Council, the podcast of the World Future Council. In each episode, we'll highlight current challenges and policy solutions. And we'll also take you on a journey of inspiring stories. Listen in to another of our intergenerational dialogues from around the globe. Hello everyone, my name is Akini Obama Manners and I'm 24 years old and a Youth Present representative. I am passionate about working with children and young people to positively impact their lives by using art to allow for self-expression and creative thinking. For example, I've been working at Sajku Foundation in Kenya since 2019 where I helped develop the arts and creativity project activities and I work with toddlers and young people in an early childhood development program at Niceview Children's Village in Kenya. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Hafsat Abiola today and to learn more about her life, her work and her engagement with the World Future Council. By way of introduction, Hafsat Abiola Castello, human and civil rights campaigner, and was appointed June 5th, 2018, as the executive president of Women in Africa Initiative. This initiative is dedicated to the economic development and support of leading and high potential African women. She is also the founder of the Kudirat Initiative for Democracy, which seeks to strengthen civil society and promote democracy in Nigeria. In 2008, she founded China Africa Bridge, an organization that seeks to ensure that growing Sino-African ties benefit between the continent and China. Hafsat received the Youth Peace and Justice Award from the Cambridge Peace Commission in 1997, the State of the World's Forum Changemaker Award in 1998, and the World Economic Forum's Global Leader of Tomorrow Award 2000. Since 2008, she has been a council member of World Future Council. Welcome to the Good Council, Hafsat. Thank you so much, Akini. How have you been? Like, it's so great to see you again. <laughs> no, Akini, I've been really, I think, under a lot of stress. Um, as of Monday, I just went for my final divorce court date. So that's oh, so a huge, huge um, thing. But I've begun to realize how important it is that women have spaces of their own. I think that we do so many things differently and the world needs the balance between the male and female energies. And when I say the balance between the male and female energies, I'm not talking about um, an institution like marriage, where oftentimes you find that you are um, the female energy is being subsumed into a pre-existing framework. I'm talking about real partnership where both energies coexist in equal power, because I think that that then allows for the full expression of what's positive. And I think that we need to be thinking of how women create spaces that allows us to hold onto our power so that we have the full capacity to transform dysfunctional spaces. Instead of just going into encouraging women to go into spaces where then there'll just be um, a number, a quarter, and we'll say we have 25%, we have 30%, but what's still the outcome in terms of the allocation of resources, um, innovation, the appropriation of benefits, 
Is it more egalitarian? Is it more democratic? Is it more life-sustaining or not? So I think that I want us to begin, and I especially, you know, in the end, it was because of your generation that I was bullish around this question of a divorce. Not because of myself, because actually the way that um, we're raised in Nigeria and particularly my culture, the Yoruba culture, from a very young age, girls are trained that we say to us, you have to be like cool water. So even when you are in a hot situation, if you're very, if you cool enough, you cool the situation. You know, we, because we, we're really trained to stay calm and to absorb quite a lot. And I could have continued absorbing any number of things. But when I thought of two children that I have, my son and my daughter, but I want them to have the example of equal coexistence between male and female energy. And I want that given to them in such a clear and compelling way. Why do I say that? My mom died when she was 44 years old. I was, um, at the time she died, I was about 21. I was going to turn 22, but I hadn't turned 22 yet. So she has been dead. I'm going to be 50 very soon. In three years, I'll be 50. She has been dead for more than half of my life. And yet, Akinyi, I tell you that whenever I have a question about anything, I feel my mother. I feel her voice. And I feel her saying, just sit. I just feel her sitting beside me. And then we look at the problem together. And then I just feel her saying, it's going to be this way. And you know, we are Africans and Africans, we believe very much in the ancestors. In the journey that I've taken just even in the last few months. It's so inspiring to me how you talk about your mother and her role and her legacy in your life. So what did you learn from your mother and what might she have learned from you? Um, so when I was very young, um, not just um, an introvert, which kind of can extrapolate since I said I'm a loner, but I'm, um, I, I'm very, on this cool water thing, my water is very cool, extremely cool. I remember one day someone slapped me, and someone younger than me, she was upset and she slapped me. And my mother, so my mother came, came to hear about it. Now, I didn't do anything when the person did that because I just felt clearly she must be upset. And my mother taught me something at that moment, that it was important for me not to allow people to walk all over me because left to myself, I'm actually perfectly comfortable with that. Essentially, she was teaching me to stand up for myself because she got so upset and she spoke to me and scolded me and essentially said, you have to learn to stand up for yourself. So I think that's the big lesson I learned from my mother is that I have to stand up for myself. Um, she felt very much that I shouldn't um, allow that to happen. And actually, that has really helped me in my life. Because I think just because it doesn't really matter to you isn't actually a good reason to allow somebody to do something that isn't respectful of you. Yeah. So there's something else I wanted to say about that, which is connected. It's always better in um, any engagement wherever possible, the, the strongest power is in action, not so much in words. So if there's something that we don't like, 
Like we don't like the way Africa is positioned in the global economy. But Africans spend so much time talking about the poverty in Africa, the challenges. I just think that that's not what we should be doing. We should be spending as much time connecting me, Hafsa, connecting to Akini and seeing and doing research. How do we change that situation? That's where power is. You know, power is um, not just in exhausting yourselves, lamenting. Lamentation, now what is it going to do for anybody? What has it ever done? But it's in innovation, always holding on to hope and always trusting that the God that made Caucasians and made Asians is the same God that has made Africans. And it's not a God that's going to abandon us to poverty and misery. So that this challenge that he has set before us, he has set because he knows we can meet the challenge, then we work to meet it. So I think that, um, and, and when we move in that way, we then engage all the potential allies and say, here's where the, what Africans are doing. We would love for you to partner with us. Yeah, and I think it's about like, cause I think power comes from within. So it's how you harness that power. Completely agree. I think that's so important. And I think also with how like the pandemic has happened and how things have slowed down, I think especially as like black women, we're always told like we're so strong, you know, we fight through whatever adversity or whatever happens to us. And I think it's important for us to like be able to like be soft, to be able to be sad if we need to be sad, it's because I think as well as like being a strong woman, you also need to like have, you need to have emotions. You need to be like emotional in the sense that you can like slow down, you can see things for what they really are and not just like hard as that's what like the world expects women to be because we're strong, you know. You know, to be honest with you, I think it's even, it even goes deeper than that. I think, you know, First, we're women, and that's a big issue that we need to unpack. And we're also black people. That's also, I even think in the world that we live in, it's even in a way bigger. I think, you, you know, there was another time I read about um, the Second World War and Winston Churchill in England. You know, he, you know, Africans as colonial subjects had been part of that war as soldiers. Um, Nigeria, many countries, Kenya. Um, but at the end, when they were doing the, um, the march into England, the, the victory march into England, Winston Churchill made the decision that the Africans should come in last so that by this time, uh, most, most of the crowd would have gone and then they wouldn't have to acknowledge that Africans had contributed to helping them win that war. No, I think it's always interesting for us when we hear about things like this. We, we think, oh, how could that have happened? And that's wrong. I think we should think differently. I think, you know, how are those kinds of things happening even today? In what ways are um, Africans being continually objectified? In what ways are we not um, getting the rewards of our labor? Because I think sometimes those kinds of practices we think of colonization it went on and it in the from 1958 when ghana 
secured independence, the countries in Africa became, started to become independent. But we don't think of the kind of mindset that shaped those kinds of um, political systems and the fact that those mindsets still exist. So I think, you know, that we need to realize that colonization or um, frameworks are like the tip of the iceberg that we can see. But below the iceberg is even a larger body of values, ideas, um, beliefs about other people. So that even if you take care of um, the colonization as a framework and say, we, let's um, get this country to be independent, you will continually have the children, um, the, the, the offsprings of that kind of mindset that would also be dis, um, 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 degrading, dehumanizing for the people affected. So I want us to take that approach. And because if we take that approach, we become more critical, um, less um, accepting, um, more insistent on evidence, more insistent on data, more insistent on looking at actual results and not to be overwhelmed and overtaken by pronouncements. There was this beautiful quote from Toni Morrison where she said, um, the big, the big, um, um, the big uh, motive of racism is distraction. So they tell you, you don't have a history and you start doing research to prove you have a history. And they tell you, you don't have a language and they show to prove that you language. And there you're exhausting all this. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think we need to remember that our goal as Africans is not to prove our humanity to anyone. Our goal as Africans is to be present in the world on equal terms with others. And, and so we should keep our eye on that prize, that what does the world need to have expressed today that we as Africans can also support the expression of and not get distracted by all these efforts, many centuries in the making to dehumanize and degrade us. Yeah. Oh, that was really like incredible to listen to. Like, I'm just like lost for words. <laughs> like I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Um, so now I want to know more about you and so my first question is what did you want to be when you were a child when I was young I wanted to be a diplomat and I told my dad that I want to be a diplomat because I had gotten into Georgetown School of Foreign Service I applied early from high school yeah. and um, I said to my dad that I want to go there because I want to be a diplomat and my father paused and he said what kind of husband will you marry gallivanting around the world <laughs> oh. and the funny thing is that if not for covid i would still be gallivanting around the world because when, yeah. he, won, when he won his um the political the presidential election in nigeria and this was decades ago in 1993 and then the military put him in jail and my mother had to begin to lead the pro-democracy effort at that moment, I became an activist. I started traveling to speak for our cause for democracy. I was traveling all over the United States, through Canada, through the United Kingdom, everywhere, even to Germany, to press our case. And then afterwards, um, I became involved. I created an organization in Nigeria to empower women and young people 
to participate in that democracy and kept traveling because of that, because I'd be invited to um, Sweden, I'd be invited, um, I was working on a youth employment campaign to help generate millions of jobs for young people around the world. So we would be holding a summit in Egypt, we would hold a summit in India, you know, so I was always traveling. And I think also, because through your work, you're promoting the development of women as initiators of change through leadership and awareness programs. For example, through founding the Kudarat Initiative for Democracy, which is named after your mother. <laughs> um, why did you name after your mother? Oh, I like that woman so much. Yeah. She's such a nice and great human being. Yeah. And when the military gunned her down on the streets of Lagos, because she was organizing the democratic effort, I wanted to let the military know that they had not silenced that voice. So yeah. I created, because she's a very kind lady. Um, I just needed the acronym kind. And I knew yeah. it starts with a K, so that made it easy. Yeah. And that. Oh. Um, I, I put Kudrat Initiative for Nigerian Democracy. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe if she hadn't been killed, she would have gone global. So why, why restrict her just because she was killed? So I made it Kudrat Initiative for Democracy. And what I've learned, what I've learned in the decades of working very hard fostering democracy in, in Nigeria, especially, is that um, you cannot really have political democracy if you don't also have um, the sovereignty to define your economic path, the autonomy to define your economic path. And a lot of the African countries, the reason why we have so much wealth and yet our graduates are without jobs is because we're in a global economic system that is very restrictive and um, extremely extractive of the African continent and um, exploitative of the African continent and is not giving us enough resources to actually really solve those issues of, um, of unemployment. And because that, the issue of unemployment is connected to infrastructure, especially power and so many other areas that cost a huge amount of money to put in place. But Africa is a wealth generator. It's just not a wealth generator for Africans. And yeah. if Africa were able to be in a position to generate the wealth for Africans, then we would be able to begin to um, put in place those, um, the necessary um, ecosystem for prosperity. And that's where we, uh, we have to go. And, and I mean it when I say that Africa um, is a wealth generator. Because there was this study that was done by the Soros Foundation and also is done all, and has been confirmed by the UN Economic Commission on Africa, where they look at the economies of Africa and they ask the question, um, is the world helping Africa? Or is Africa helping the world? Like looking at capital flows, money, the flow of money. Is the world, is the net benefit of the flows between Africa and the rest of the world net positive for Africa? Or is it Africa that is that sends out wealth into the world? And when they looked at foreign direct investment from all the global players, 
and they looked at um, investment. Um, they looked at aid, which we often hear about when the G7 meets and they make these pronouncements. And they look at all of those things. Then they look at all the money that flows out of Africa. They found that um, Africa powers the world to the tune of about $50 billion a year. Africa is net um, negative. Africa is being sucked dry on behalf of wealthier parts of the world. So we're not so much um, poor, we're being impoverished. There's a difference. We are poor because we are being impoverished. And we can, we need to change that. Because um, in a way we've been doing that net negative for 400 years, first with people and now with our critical resources. And um, it's time for the world to feed the continent, the mother continent actually, so that we can actually yeah. take our 1.2 billion people. Yeah, I think so too. And um, what is the most important piece of advice that you live by? I think the most important piece of advice that has become crystal, crystal clear to me now is that um, we must never forget the power of signaling the world we want. You know, so there's a lot of information and people, there are people that can share a lot of information that tells you that there's a crisis and all of that. But we have to always remember that human beings are social beings. And as social beings, human beings um, are, so, are um, open to influence but they are most susceptible to the loudest or maybe the most consistent influence. And I think those of us who want the world shaped in a different way are so overawed by the status quo. And we just keep looking and saying, but look at this and look at that. And yet if we keep signaling that the world is ready for change, you know, even the status quo that we think is so powerful, all of a sudden we'll start to make small changes and then bigger changes. So I think that um, we have to begin to, we have to realize another thing that um, connected to this, this, um, this Ava DuVernay, she has a great quote, the filmmaker, she has this great, yeah. she says, the world is not impressed by potential. The world is impressed by momentum. And it goes to that signaling issue. So if we start to build momentum around the issues we care about, people will start to pay attention. It'll start to influence their thinking and shape their thinking. And then we will change the world. So in fact, it might seem very small, whatever it is that we decide to do. But if we actually do those things, then we can actually shape a different reality. Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned that in Africa, you believe in the power of community over the power of individuals. How has that shaped your life? Oh, no, that's okay. In, in, in terms of my, um, my philosophy of life, that's the key one. So yeah. I want to tell you the story and it's on my Twitter. I pinned it on my Twitter page. This anthropologist um, took, um, he, he met some African children in a village. And he told them that he had a basket of fruits and he set up a game. He said that the, the, um, whichever of them 
would get to a tree first, would get like the basket of fruits. And the children looked at each other and then they held hands and then walked to the tree. So all of them won. And he asked them, you know, why did you play that game in that way? And they said, um, how can we be happy? How can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? And I think that that's um, a call to humanity, that we're all here together, you know? And so we should look out for one another. We should always try to take care of each other. And, and then the world becomes a much better place. And so, you know, that's very, that's about the power of community. Yeah, for sure. And I think also like hopefully now there's, I think now people are getting this sense of like that we actually need to be a community to make things happen. But yes, I, I think it comes from like the individual like mindset, the mentality, but like for us to be able to like really execute it, we need others to assist us. And I think this is where also this conversation is so important because it's like having these intergenerational conversations yes. for us to like move forward because we need to know like how it was happening in the past and also like speaking to someone like you who like has lived it, who has, you know, has been in it for most of your life. I think that that's the superpower that we Africans have. I yeah, definitely. The Western countries have very strong markets and companies, and um, Asian countries have very strong states. And the Africans, our superpower is at the strength of our communities. Look yeah. at Ujama in Kenya, how through that um, collective community, you've been able to educate millions of people, millions of poor children who've gone on to build careers. You know, that same kind of dynamic is across the continent. I think that where Africa's, um, what Africa needs to do next is take that same impetus into all the other um, foreign imposed um, systems that we have in our economy and in our politics. Bring the African sense of community to those other um, foreign things. And in that way, actually, adapt those foreign things so that they suit us. Because those foreign structures and institutions haven't been working for like, I don't know, 50, 60 years. And it's time for us to actually um, have the confidence to shape them differently, to shape them in a way that is meant to work for us. Instead of trying to force the Africans to um, contort themselves to fit institutions that were created for another, for other people, based on their history and culture. We should be actually designing institutions that, that work for us, given the way we are. We deserve yeah. Definitely working then. So yes. it's really about like our culture. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that um, I don't think that we Africans need to continue to feel inferior to anybody. There's nowhere I've been to where I think I've thought these people are more than we are. Yes, when I've been to China, <laughs> I felt that these people are more organized than we are. <laughs> and when I've been to the United States, I thought these people are more innovative. But actually, we also have um, very strong organization, organizational strengths. We also have very strong... Um, innovation capacity but we're just not nurturing all of that 
So I think that we just have to become more confident. We as Africans, but also all of humanity has to become more confident that a new way is possible. You know, I think one of the big challenges is that um, to my mind, the African countries have adopted um, the political system that is not really about the welfare and the well-being of the majority of the people in their countries. The political system and the um, political econ economy that we've generally, all of us, adopted is to allow us to participate in a global economic structure. And in just the same way that the Africans participated in the Second World War on equal terms, died in equal proportion, or maybe even more in um, proportion to the rest of the soldiers, but were relegated to the back at the end of the war, we're in a, a political economy that is structured to benefit from Africa without really benefiting the Africans. My father yeah. used to have a great joke. He said that the world wants Africa. We just don't want the Africans in it. And I think that, um, you know, it's the only way you can understand and rationalize the way in which we have so much of the world's gold, so much of the world's copper, so much of the world's diamonds, so much of the world's coal tan, so much of the world's remaining arable land. And yet our people are in the way that you just, you just described. We really need to engage and renegotiate all of that. And we need to be empowering young people for that. Because, you know, for me, it's a 400 year old story. And I think that we can all agree, 1.2 billion Africans can all agree that that story has done, is, has done whatever good it's ever gonna do, which was never any good for us. And it's time for a new one. And we should start signaling, signaling consistently, um, clearly that it's time for a new story. And even if I don't get to live in that new story, I think if we start now working together across generations, Akindi, you can live in that new story and your children can live in that new story. Yeah, that's what I'm praying for. So <laughs> oh, that's what I think why I do what I do. So I want to make sure it happens. So. So you've experienced and gone through some hard strokes of fate. So yeah. how has this shaped your life and your decisions? Mm. So there's this, um, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it says um, um, women do not know that they're strong until being strong is the only choice they have. And maybe because, um, as I was saying, I'm from 22 years old, my mom was killed. I wasn't even 22, I was going to turn 22. And um, my father was still in jail. And I was yeah. the second oldest child with um, five younger siblings, the youngest of whom was seven years old. And the one after him was nine. So they were quite young. And I had to take responsibility right away. So I had to find us a home, make a haven of the home and start working to raise children and raise a family, get a job 
luckily I was just graduating from university when my mom was killed. So I was able to take my um, degree and get us get a job so I could feed the family. And um, so I think, you know, because there was no choice, there wasn't a question, yeah. just had to get on with it and do it. So I did the best I could. So now yeah. when, um, when I'm in this new phase of my life, I feel like, you know, I already know that I'm strong. I already know because I've done so much that signal to me that I am strong. Well, if I have learned anything in that whole process, it's also, um, you must always give people in, in, um, the opportunity, opportunity to start again. So even if somebody yeah. gets something right, you should always give them the opportunity to try again. And, and I think you must always give people the opportunity to start over because people are learning every day. And as I said, you know, the iceberg is what you see, but the values, attitudes, beliefs are under, and they're so large and very hard to move. So, you know, so I think you must always try, no matter what experience you've had, I think first we must take ourselves seriously. So when we have experiences, we must act to protect our um, integrity and to protect us and make sure we're safe. But we must always leave the door open for people. We must always engage with people as if, just as we are, they are redesigning, they're the, um, they're the artists painting their life and they could change that picture at any time. I think that that's kind of because that kind of um, permission is what we're asking of the creative force that guides the whole universe to help us to design a different life. So we must always be open to allowing others to do the same in theirs as well. Oh, so we can move on to a bit about World Future Council now. So you're one of the earliest councillors to have joined. So please tell us about how you joined and the early days. Um, so I was in San Francisco. There was this event um, that was organized. Well, it was no longer organized, but it used to be organized in the 90s and in the early noughties, um, organized by Jim Garrison, um, called the State of the World Forum. And it was organized in partnership with the Gorbachev Foundation of Mikhail Gorbachev the idea with um, of convening people to look at the state of the world and build for a different kind of world and um jacob van Uxel, the founder of um the world future council used to attend i used to attend as well and we became very 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 good friends so i like him a lot he's one of those brilliant hyper brilliant minds and I, those are the kind of people I like most, you know, the way he thinks of the world and the way he engages is very powerful and inspiring. So he came to me um, a few years after the State of the World Forum ended and said he was creating the World Future Council and he wanted me to be part of it. Of course I said yes, because actually it gave me an opportunity to be around him because I like brilliant people. And I like to be around them. And so because I was one of the early people, our big task was even to raise secure support, financing for the kind of work that the World Future Council was doing. 
So we used to go and have meetings with um, philanthropists like Anita Roddick, who was the founder mm -hmm. of the Body Shop, and um, some royalty from um, from the Gulf states of the Arab world, and all kinds of very major personalities, even um, some major um, movie stars, musicians. It was so challenging securing the, the support. And I think in some ways, that story for the World Future Council remains true. I mean, it's, it's been able to get support over the years and some support consistently, but it's always a major challenge. And I think that, um, and I think that that's, in, um, that's to be expected because what it does is so different what the World Future Council does is exactly what we've been saying we need in this conversation. They're not looking at a problem. They look at solutions. What solutions have been proven to work? And then they do a lot of um, systemic analysis about, about the solution and then offer it to the world to say, if you're looking for how you can um, encourage renewable energy in your country. Here's the feeding tariff that was adopted in Germany. Here's how it was adopted in these other countries. You can use legislation and other um, policies to get it adopted in your country. Even though the world needs, the world that is, is hungry and thirsty for that, they don't, they're not used to paying for that. What the world is used to, for is controversy, crises, you know, um, World Future Council has been identifying solutions to so many different challenges. And we need to just support the democratization of those solutions and we begin to change the world that way. So I think that possibly one of the things we should probably be working on as a World Future Council is to have a World Future Council that is just made up of young people. And people like me, um, and the other members of the current council can be mentors and champions. To, I think that this is not a bad idea because the world is for young people anyway. And especially the continent yeah. we are from, the African continent, in another few decades, 50% of the world's youth will be from the continent of Africa. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, we're a generation of young people here. Like it's all young people in Africa. And so. we need to let you guys know that there's hope and that the hope is embodied in you. And the earlier we yeah. give you support and get you started, then you can stick on because you know you're going to build, you're going to need to succeed. In order to succeed, you're going to need to build the networks. You need to build the knowledge, the depth of knowledge. You would need um, you would also need to take power. And this you can do because, you know, many of the African countries are predominantly young people, they're over 60% under 30. And, you know, so to get people elected into office, it's the young people that are deciding. It's just that so far they're not deciding for young people, but that can change. Um, and then we can give I think a whole new lease of life. Yeah, and I think also like, especially like for Kenyan youth, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but like, it's clear, you can see like so many Kenyan youth are so dis disillusioned because they go to university, they study, they finish their degree, 
and has no jobs. They're the ones like in in the city center in Nairobi are pulling like mkokoteni. It's like these carts, and they probably have a degree in law or a doc or they're like a doctor or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's nothing for them. They've just like been forgotten and left behind. And then it's like they're being even like being targeted by the police constantly every day. Yeah. And the World Future Council is also pursuing the goal of involving young people more in the decisions of the council and the foundation. And um, they established the Youth Forum, Youth Present, of which I am a member. What would you advise youth forums like us, but also political institutions more generally, who wish to integrate young people in political decision-making? So I'm so glad that you're part of that, Akinyi. And I think, how old are you? 24. 24. That's That's very powerful. Now, here's what I think. I think we need a strategic plan. What you guys are going to do. It can be a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 15-year plan. Ideally, it should be minimum 20-year plan. Mm -hmm. And then we get started. And all that our group of elders should do is um, every year we should meet with you guys and say, where are we on this plan? And then you guys will advise us what you've achieved, what are the challenges? And then we act like we're in Apple or we're um, Disney or Microsoft, we're one of those global companies. You know, we, we, we do strategy sessions, we call in experts and look at the challenges you're having, we come up with a, um, some ideas and then you young people sit down and formulate again, based on the ideas, a one year plan for the next year. And then at the end of it, again, we gather and we sit with you in a supportive circle and we say, where are you? What have you done? What are the obstacles you're facing? And we start that whole process again. And I, and I promise you by the end of 20 years, you will not believe what you would have accomplished. We should take a big issue and tackle it. What would you say your legacy for future generations is? I want to make sure that we build democracy in all dimensions, not just as a political spring and not the way it was built by the Greeks where the citizens had the rights and the slaves carried the society but had no rights. And I think that's actually what we've replicated in the rest of the world where we build democracy, but in the end, the people have very little power in how things are done, how benefits are shared. I want us to build democracy that is not just political democracy, but democracy in our economics, democracy in our society. There will be no slaves. There'll be no group of people upon whom uh, um, prosperity has been built and who get nothing. We will do away with that. And that's the legacy we will leave those that will come after us you know and then because you named your first child khalil after the poet khalil gibran he wrote yesterday is but today's memory and tomorrow is today's dream what do those words mean to you it's such a beautiful quote like i'd never read it heard of it before but i love it so what do those words mean to you Mm. so we've been talking a lot about history but I think that what that quote says to me is, 
what is your dream? You know, because what you dream today, that's what we will live tomorrow. And you know, and I think it's a very important quote because we can talk about what this person did, that person did. At the end of the day, those are not the things that are important. What will we do? What do we dream that we now bring about? And then we leave that as a gift, you know, for the future, for the descendants that are coming. That's actually how I think and how I want to um, shape my life. Because I think, you know, at the end of the day, if we're not um, careful, you will find that you're surrounded by everyone and they're saying that, oh, we have to do this this way and it has to be that way. And you, so you're all conforming. But if you actually um, take a moment and step back, like World Future Council does, and sit, and sit in the circle of those that are still coming, the future generations, and think, you know, how can we be fair to them? We would shape a different reality. We would not be so, you know, if we if we stay with our current, um, with the current, the peer pressure we have and the current um, circles that we um, interact in, we will build a world that is um, more of the same. So I would say that we should not ignore the current, the people in the world today, but you should not allow them to become tyrants. You should balance them with the world that is coming. And all that we in our generation as custodians have to do is to make that world as large as possible for those that are coming, not by the actions that we take cause um, the resources to be so depleted that those that are coming will have less options. That's evil. We should conduct ourselves in such a way as to leave the biggest, most expansive planet that we can. And if we have that consciousness, then whenever you know um, the current circles, our peers are all telling us, well, if you do it this way, you're gonna sacrifice all your goodwill. You will lose out. We will actually be in a position to say, and so be it. Better to lose out for this generation in the, in the game of winning the next, why not? You know, when I yeah. look at my time, when I was at Harvard as an undergrad, I used to walk through cobblestones much of the university was built by slaves. They never were paid, but they paved the way from the building of the university, of the building to the civil rights movement when the African-Americans took the fight with liberal Americans to the establishment of a country to change the laws. And it was all those people acting in that way, some of them paying the price with their lives that allowed me, a Nigerian girl from a Muslim polygamous home to come into Harvard and walk in Harvard. They opened the way for me. What way do I open for those that are going to come in the future? And I want us to think in this way and act in this way because it makes for a better world for everyone. And yet we may pay a price because sometimes when you act in this way, you're acting ahead of your time. 
but there's no way to call the future into the present without some people acting ahead of their time. And are you hopeful as you look towards the future? Yes. My father's campaign <laughs> for his um, presidential election was Hope 93. He believed in the power of hope, and I, and I do as well. I think with mm. hope, you can really shape the world. But what can you do with hopelessness? Very little. Mm. Very little. Do you have any questions for me or my peers before we come to an end? <laughs> I want to know what your dreams are and how you want us to be supportive. Because I think it's important, you know, this conversation, I've been doing so much of the talking and that to me, I mean, it's okay to do, but I, we wanna give you guys the space to grow into who you can be. And I'm looking forward to the experience of just sitting down and having opportunities to hear from you, where you wanna go, who you wanna become, and then supporting you to get there. Well, I think for me, my dream is really to be an educator because how I see it um, is that like, I think that education is key, especially for like the world we want to live in, this community, this harmony. And for us to like get there, I think it starts from the minute you come out of the womb, literally like yeah. that you start educating the child then. Like, even if you look at like the SDGs, like, I'll be honest, like not like maybe before even I started working at South and stuff, I didn't know what SDGs were. Like even a lot of my friends, we don't know. So, and now I'm like, I know what they are. Like I hear about them a lot, especially in the work I'm doing, but it's like, those are things that they're really like incredible, amazing things that I think everyone should live by. But why is it that like, we're not being taught that from the minute we start school? Because I think if like we're educated on these things from like the kindergarten up to like high school, even college, then already you are, you have this mindset of harmony, of community, of like being caring to one another, of like wanting as you grow and become great, you also want the person next to you to also grow and become great. But I think because we don't know these, we aren't taught about these things, we don't know about them, like uh, I think a lot of the time we end up being selfish and all these things go wrong and then it's like now later it's like we're picking up the pieces like we realize like even now maybe with the pandemic everything slowed down so people now are realizing oh we need to okay we need to go back and like see how can we help others like it's like it's kind of forced us to like look at those things so I think it's really like education is key and like my one dream is like where Sautoku is based. It's like where my family comes from in Kenya. And yesterday we had, cause we've been doing like a project the whole week. We built like the traditional hut and an energy saver stove. It was a pilot project that we're going to now do in like the 20, for 25 families in their homesteads because they use like the GECO, like the coal stove and then also like to stop like the felling of the trees. So we did this and like traditionally it's like when you build the traditional hut, it's like the whole community comes together, you, everyone helps. And we had this amazing conversation at the end yesterday when we finished and they were talking about like the things that aren't working in the communities. And this one man, he said he was um, 
an older parent, he said that um, where he comes from, his village, there's no school and there's no hospital. And it's like to get to that, it's like you have to kind of go far. So we were kind of talking about like, what can we do moving forward? What, how do they want their area to change in the next five years? And we have a children's learning center that's just been like built recently and it's going to be for four to 12 year olds. And it's gonna be all about like competency-based learning. And um, they were saying like, oh, it should be changed into like a primary school or something. But for us at the moment, we just kind of, we don't really want it to be like a school. It's more about like the children will come and they'll do tuition and they'll like learn things, but it won't be like a school. So I said, I said, um, because I'm moving to Ghana in January to study. So I said that, oh, don't worry, that will come because I want to build that. Because especially as I look at, see the schools in the area, it's like the teachers sometimes don't come to school. They have like let like half the amount of teachers they need for how many kids they have. And even the kids that come to Sajku, the children and young people, they do much better because we do tuition with them. So they're performing better than the other kids in the community. So I want, and then the thing is the school system in Kenya is so academic that it like, if you're not academic, if you're not someone who is like book smart, you're left behind. So for me, I want to create like a system where it like, because we have all these great creative systems like Montessori, Waldorf, you know, all these different systems, but I feel like they're very much, it's kind of like exclusive. It's like, if you're privileged, you have the opportunity to like learn that way, this creative learning. And like, because of maybe like the schools I went to, I was able to like have such exposure to that, but like these kids, they don't. So I want to create a system where even if it doesn't mean, because I think changing the Kenyan education system, that's like the long-term dream, but that one I'd have to be Minister of Education. So that would take a while. But like, for now, I want to like create a system that can be go two and two with the current system. So it's like also about training the teachers how to handle the kids. If you're with a child that's maybe like, that has a bit of a temper, like how to deal with that child, not to just be like, okay, this one isn't listening. Let me just like, you know, send him out of class or something. And so that's my dream, literally to like educate and like, you know, teach this community like mentality that like this whole, it takes a village that we have, but to continue that because I think it's being forgotten. And also then also I'd love for it to be like in many different countries and then you also learn about your culture so you have obviously English and maybe like other languages you learn but then because the school is in Nyangomakogelo which is where we are now in western Kenya the language spoken here is Luo so it's like one of the languages you learn is Luo as well as other languages so it's like you learn the culture of where you are but then also you're learning about everywhere else too so it's this kind of like worldwide community and like that's the dream for me <laughs> I get excited when I talk about it because I'm actually it's starting see. to happen as I'm moving to Ghana so I can see and it's a beautiful dream and you're gonna it's gonna yeah. be reality yeah one step at a time yeah one step at a time. So, and it took me a while to get there because mm -hmm. before that I was very much going down the creative route of like fine art fashion design and then life got in the way and then I realized actually I'm like so good at working with kids so I was like this is my calling I found it so for me it's like now I know what I need to do
And I love the fact that you've said that, you know, because all what you've described has always been available for wealthier kids. Yeah. And we just have to make sure it's available for all kids. Yeah, exactly. So, and it needs to be accessible. And I think even like having these conversations, it's very much like, even as I like, you know, it's like great, but I think everyone needs to be part of that conversation. Like I see, like there's people probably 10 times smarter than me that probably should even be like having this conversation, but because they don't get the exposure, they don't have the opportunity to, because they don't know this person, they don't know that person. And of course, okay, nepotism, I think it's okay if like you're smart and you're like good at what you do and maybe you need that opportunity. But then a lot of the time, and I think also that's the thing also in Kenya, it's like nepotism has become so big that like you don't know anything about what the job that you've been given but just because so you know so and so so it's like so many people aren't getting the opportunities they need and I'm and like because I've been given so many opportunities I want to like give space to people that deserve those opportunities even like I'll like be and I'm really I'm a champion of that because like if I'm like given an opportunity and I know okay I'm not it's not my specialty I'm not like an expert in that let me give it to one of my friends who I know is someone who's good at that or someone I know let me tell them about it and that's I want to create that right? so that's responsible but yeah. many of us don't do we don't behave that way yet yeah. we can start to teach people how but I have to go yeah. big big hugs at Kini and Anna thank you thank you so much and, thank um, you so said about the youth forum I want to really help with that Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation and will tune in again for more next time. This podcast is brought to you by the World Future Council, a foundation that identifies, develops, highlights and disseminates future just solutions for the current challenges that humanity is facing. To support our work, find us at www.worldfuturecouncil.org as well as on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and, of course, in our next episode.